The King of Schnorrers by Israel Zangwill, read by Adrian Predzelis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The King of Schnorrers by Israel Zangwill, Chapter Three, showing how His Majesty went to the theatre and was wooed. As Manasseh the Great, first beggar in Europe, sauntered across Goodman's fields, attended by his Polish parasite, both serenely digesting the supper provided by the treasurer of the great synagogue, Joseph Grobstock, a martial music clove suddenly the quiet evening air, and set the Schnorrer's pulses bounding. From the tenter-ground emerged the squad of recruits, picturesque in white fatigue dress, against which the mounted officers showed gallant in blue sawtoots and scarlet-striped trousers. "'Aha!' said da Costa, with swelling breast. "'There go my soldiers!' "'Your soldiers?' ejaculated Yankela in astonishment. "'Yes. Do you not see they are returning to the India House in Leadenhall Street?' "'And what of that?' said Yankele, shrugging his shoulders and spreading out his palms. "'What of that? Surely you have not forgotten that the clodpate at whose house I have just entertained you is a director of the East India Company, whose soldiers these are?' "'Oh!' said Yankele, his mystified face relaxing in a smile. The smile fled before the stern look in the Spaniard's eyes. He hastened to conceal his amusement. Yankele was by nature a droll, and it cost him a good deal to take his patron as seriously as that potentate took himself. Perhaps if Manasseh Bueno Barzillai Azevedo da Costa had had more humour, he would have had less momentum. Your man of action is blind in one eye. Caesar would not have come and conquered if he had really seen. Wounded by that temporary twinkle in his client's eye, the patron moved on silently, in step with the military air. "'It is a beautiful night,' observed Yankele in contrition. The words had hardly passed his lips before he became conscious that he had spoken the truth. The moon was peeping from behind a white cloud, and the air was soft, and broken shadows of foliage lay across the path, and the music was a song of love and bravery. Somehow Yankele began to think of da Costa's lovely daughter. Her face floated in the moonlight. Manasseh shrugged his shoulders, unappeased. "'When one has supped well, it is always a beautiful night,' he said testily. It was as if the cloud had overspread the moon, and a thick veil had fallen over the face of da Costa's lovely daughter. But Yankele recovered himself quickly. "'Ah, oh, yes,' he said. "'You have indeed made it a beautiful night for me.' The King of Schnorrers waved his staff. "'It is always a beautiful night when I am with you,' added Yankele, undaunted. "'It is strange.' replied Manasseh musingly, that I should have admitted to my hearth and Grobstock's table one who is, after all, but a half-brother in Israel. But Grobstock is also a Tiscodo, protested Yankele. 
That is also what I wonder at, rejoined da Costa. I cannot make out how I have come to be so familiar with him. You see, ventured the Tedesco timidly, perhaps when Grobstock had really had a girl you might even have come to marry her. God, your tongue! A Sephardi cannot marry a Tedesco. It would be a degradation. Yes, but the other way round. A Tedesco can marry a Sephardi, is it not? That is a rise. If Grobstock's daughter had married you, she would have married above her, he ended with an ingenuous air. True, admitted Manasseh. But then, as Grobstock's daughter does not exist, and my wife does— Ah, but if you was me, said Yankala, would you rather marry a Tedesco or a Safadi? A Safadi, of course, but— I will be guided by you, interrupted the Pole hastily. You be the wisest man I have known. But, Manasseh repeated, do not deny it you be. Instantly will I— Instantly will I seek out a Sephardi maiden and wed her. Perhaps you crown your counsel by choosing one for me, what? Manasseh was visibly mollified. Um, how do I know your taste? he asked hesitatingly. Oh, any Spanish girl would be a prize, replied Yankala. Even when she had the face like a Passover cake, but I still prefer a Pentecost blossom. What kind of beauty do you like best? Your daughter's style, plumply answered the Pole. But there are not many like that, said da Costa unsuspiciously. No, she is like the Rose of Sharon. But then there are not many handsome fathers. Manasseh bethought himself. There is Gabriel, the corpse-watcher's daughter. People considered her figure and deportment good. Pooh! Awful! She's ugly enough to keep the Messiah from coming. Why, she is like cut out of the father's face. Besides, consider his occupation. You would not advise that I marry into a, such a low family? Be you not my benefactor? Well, I cannot think of any good-looking girl that would be suitable. Yankala looked at him with a roguish, insinuating smile. Say not that! Have you not told Grobstock that you be the first of marriage-brokers? But Manassas shook his head. No, you be quite right, said Yankala humbly. I could not get a really beautiful girl unless I married your Deborah herself. No, I am afraid not, said Manasseh sympathetically. Yankala took the plunge. Ah, why can I not hope to call you father-in-law? Manasseh's face was contorted by a spasm of astonishment and indignation. He came to a standstill. "'That must be a fine piece,' said Yankele quickly, indicating a flamboyant picture of a fearsome phaeton hovering over a sombre moat. They had arrived at Lehman Street, and had stopped before Goodman's Fields Theatre. Manasseh's brow cleared. "'It is the Castle Spectre.' he said graciously. Would you like to see it? But it is half over. Oh, no, said da Costa, scanning the playbill. There was a farce by O'Keefe to start with. The night is young. The drama will be just beginning. But it is the Sabbath. We must not pay. 
Manasseh's brow clouded again in wrathful, righteous surprise. "'Did you think I was going to pay?' he gasped. N no stammered the Pole, abashed. "'But you haven't got no orders.' "'Orders? Me? Will you do me the pleasure of accepting a seat in my box?' "'In your box?' "'Yes, there's plenty of room. Come this way,' said Manasseh. "'I haven't been to the play myself for over a year. I'm too busy always. It will be an agreeable change.' Yankele hung back, bewildered. "'Through this door,' said Manasseh, encouragingly. "'Come, you shall lead the way.' "'But they will not admit me.' will not admit you when i give you a seat in my box are you mad now you shall go in without me i insist upon it i will show you manasseh bueno barzillai azevedo da costa is a man whose word is the law of moses true as the talmud walk straight through the portico and if the attendant endeavours to stop you simply tell him mr da costa has given you a seat in his box not daring to exhibit scepticism, nay, almost confident in the powers of his extraordinary protector, Yankele put his foot on the threshold of the lobby. "'But you be coming too,' he said, turning back. "'Oh, yes, I don't intend to miss the performance. Have no fear.' Yankele walked boldly ahead and brushed by the doorkeeper of the little theatre, without appearing conscious of him. Indeed, the official was almost impressed into letting the Schnorrer pass unquestioned, as one who had gone out between the acts. But the visitor was too dingy for anything but the stage door. He had the air of those nondescript beings who hang mysteriously about the hinder recesses of playhouses. Recovering himself just in time, the functionary, a meek little cockney, hailed the intruder with a backward drawing, Hoy! "'What you want?' said Yankele, turning his head. "'There's your ticket.' "'Don't want no ticket.' "'Don't you. I does,' rejoined the little man, who was a humorist. "'Mr. da Costa has given me a seat in his box.' "'Oh, indeed. You'd swear to that in the box?' "'By my head he gave it to me.' "'A seat in his box?' "'Yes.' "'Mr. da Costa you've a saying, I think.' the same. Ah, oh, this way, then. And the humorist pointed to the street. Yankele did not budge. This way, my lad, cried the little humorist peremptorily. I tells you I'm going to Mr. da Costa's box. And I tells you you're a-going into the gutter. And the official seized him by the scruff of the neck, a big ang pushing him forward with his knee. Now then, what's this? A stern, angry voice broke like a thunderclap across the humorist's ears. He released his hold of the schnorrer and looked up, to behold a strange, shabby, stalwart figure towering over him in censorious majesty. "'Why are you hustling this poor man?' demanded Manasseh. "'He wanted to sneak in,' the little cockney replied, half apologetically and half resentfully except he ails from Saffron Hill, and he has his eyes on the wipes. 
told me some gammon, a cock-and-bull story about having a seat in a box. "'In Mr. de Costa's box, I suppose?' said Manasseh, ominously calm, with a menacing glitter in his eye. Uh, "'Yes,' said the humorist, astonished and vaguely alarmed. Then the storm burst. "'You impertinent rascal! You jackanapes! You low, beggarly rabscallion! And so you refuse to show my guest into my box?' Uh, "'Are you Mr. de Costa?' faltered the humorist. "'Yes, I am Mr. de Costa. But you won't much longer be doorkeeper if this is the way you treat people who come to see your pieces. Because, forsooth, the man looks poor, you think you can bully him safely? Forgive me, Yankala. I am so sorry I did not manage to come here before you and spare you this insulting treatment. And as for you, mine fine fellow, let me tell you that you make a great mistake in judging from appearances. There are some good friends of mine who could buy up your theatre, and you and your miserable little soul at a moment's notice, and to look at them you would think they were cadgers. One of these days, hark you, you will kick out a person of quality, and be kicked out yourself.' "'I—I'm very sorry, sir.' "'Don't say that to me.' It is my guest you owe an apology to. Yes, and by heaven you shall pay it, though he is no plutocrat, but only what he appears. Surely, because I wish to give a treat to a poor man who has, perhaps, never been to a play in his life, I am not bound to send him to the gallery. I can give him a corner in my box, if I choose. There is no rule against that, I presume." Uh, "'No, sir, I can't say that as there is,' said the humorist humbly. "'But you will allow, sir, it's rather unusual.' "'Unusual? Of course it's unusual. Kindness and consideration for the poor are always unusual. The poor are trodden upon at every opportunity, treated like dogs, not men.' If I had invited a drunken fop, you'd have met him hat in hand. No, no, you needn't take it off to me now, it's too late. But a sober poor man, by gad, I shall report your incivility to the management, and you'll be lucky if I don't thrash you with this stick into the bargain. But how was I to know, sir? Don't speak to me, I tell you. If you have anything to urge in extenuation of your disgraceful behaviour, address your remarks to my guest. You'll overlook it this time, sir, said the little humorist, turning to Yankele. Next time, perhaps, you'll believe me when I say I have a seat in Mr. da Costa's box, replied Yankele in gentle reproach. Well, if you are satisfied, Yankala, said Manasseh, with a touch of scorn, I have no more to say. Go along, my man. Show us to our box. The official bowed and led them into the corridor. Suddenly he turned back. Uh, what box is it, please? he said timidly. Blockhead! cried Manasseh. Which box should it be? The empty one, of course. "'But, sir, there are two boxes empty,' urged the poor humorist deprecatingly. 
the stage-box, and the one up by the gallery. Don't! Do I look the sort of person who is content with a box on the ceiling? Go back to your post, sir. I will find the box myself. Heaven send you wisdom. Go back. Someone might sneak in while you're away, and it would just serve you right. The little man slunk back half-dazed, glad to escape from this overwhelming personality, and in a few seconds Manasseh stalked into the empty box, followed by Yankala, whose mouth was a grin, and whose eye a twinkle. As the Spaniard took his seat, there was a slight outburst of clapping and stamping from a house impatient for the end of the entre-acte. Manasseh craned his head over the box to see the house, which in turn craned to see him, glad of any diversion, and some people, imagining the applause had reference to the newcomer, whose head appeared to be that of a foreigner of distinction, joined in it. The contagion spread, and in a minute Manasseh was the cynosure of all eyes and the unmistakable recipient of an ovation. He bowed twice or thrice in unruffled dignity. There were some who recognized him, but they joined in the reception with wondering amusement. Not a few, indeed, of the audience were Jews, for Goodman's Fields was the ghetto theatre, and the Sabbath was not a sufficient deterrent to a lax generation. The audiences, mainly Germans and Poles, came to the little unfashionable playhouse as one happy family. Distinctions of rank were trivial, and the gallery held converse with circle, and pit collogued with box. Supper-parties were held on the benches. In a box that gave on the pit, a portly Jewess sat stiffly, arranged in the very pink of fashion, in a spangled robe of India muslin, with a diamond necklace and crescent, her head crowned by terraces of curls and flowers. "'Betsy!' called up a jovial feminine voice from the pit when the applause had subsided. Betsy did not move, but her cheeks grew hot and red. She had got on in the world and did not care to recognize her old crony. "'Betsy!' iterated the well-meaning woman. "'By your life and mine, you must take a piece of my fried fish!' And she held up a slice of cold place, beautifully browned. Betsy drew back, striving unsuccessfully to look unconscious. To her relief the curtain rose, and the castle spectre walked. Yankele, who had scarcely seen anything but private theatricals, representing the discomfiture of the wicked Haman and the triumph of Queen Esther, a role he had once played himself in his mother's old clothes, was delighted with the thrills and terrors of the ghostly melodrama. It was not until the conclusion of the second act that the emotion the beautiful but injured heroine cost him welled over again into matrimonial speech. "'We wind up the night glorious,' he said. "'I'm glad you like it. It is certainly an enjoyable performance,' Manasseh answered with stately satisfaction. "'Your daughter Deborah,' Yankele ventured timidly, "'do she ever go to the play?' "'No, I do not take my womankind about. Their duty lies at home. As it is written, I call my wife not wife, but home.' "'But think how they would enjoy themselves.' "'We are not sent here to enjoy ourselves. 
true most true said yankele pulling a smug face we be sent here to obey the law of moses but do not remind me i be a sinner in israel how so i am twenty-five yet i have no wife i dare say you had plenty in poland by my soul not only one and i gave her get for barrenness you can write to the rabbi of my town why should i write it's not my affair but i want it to be your affair manasseh glared do you begin that again he murmured it is not so much that i desire your daughter for a wife as you for a father-in-law it cannot be said manasseh more gently oh dat i was born a sephardi said yankele with a hopeless groan it's too late now said da costa soothingly they say it's never too late to mend moaned the pole is there no way for me to be converted to spanish judaism i could easily pronounce hebrew in your superior way our judaism differs in no essential respect from yours it is a question of blood you cannot change your blood as it is said and the blood is the life i know i know that i aspire too high oh why did you become my friend why did you make me believe you cared for me so did i think of you day and night and now when i ask you to be my father-in-law you say it cannot be it is like a knife in the heart think how proud and happy i should be to call you my father-in-law all my life would i be devoted to you my one thought to be worthy of such a man you are not the first i have been compelled to refuse said manasseh with emotion what helps me that there be other schlemils quoted yankele with a sob how can i live without you for a father-in-law i am sorry for you more sorry than i have ever been then you do care for me i will not give up hope i will not take no for no answer what is this blood that it should divide you from jew that it should prevent me from becoming the father-in-law of the only man i have ever loved say not so let me ask you again in a month or a year even twelve months would i wait then you could only promise not to pledge your daughter to another man but if i become your father-in-law mind i only say if not only would i not keep you but you would have to keep my deborah and supposing but you are not able to keep a wife not able who told you dat cried yankele indignantly you yourself why when i first befriended you you told me you were blood poor dat i told you as a schnorrer but now i speak to you as a suitor true admitted manasseh instantly appreciating the distinction and as a suitor i tell you i can schnorr enough to keep two vives but do you now tell this to da costa the father or da costa the marriage broker hush from all parts of the house as the curtain went up and the house settled down but yankele was no longer in rapport with the play the spectre had ceased to thrill and the heroine to touch his mind was busy with feverish calculations of income scraping together every penny he could raise by hook or crook and even drew out a crumpled piece of paper and a pencil but thrust them back into his pocket when he saw manasseh's eye 
"'I forgot,' he murmured apologetically. "'Being at the play made me forget it was the Sabbath.' And he pursued his calculations mentally, uh, this being naturally less work. When the play was over, the two beggars walked out into the cool night air. "'I find,' Yankele began eagerly in the vestibule, "'I make at least one hundred fifty pounds.' He paused to acknowledge the farewell salutation of the little doorkeeper at his elbow. A hundred and fifty a year. Indeed, said Manasseh, in respectful astonishment. Yes, I have reckoned it all up. Ten are the sources of charity. As it is written, interrupted Manasseh with unction, with ten sayings was the world created. There were ten generations from Noah to Abraham. With ten trials our father Abraham was tried. Ten miracles were wrought for our fathers in Egypt, and ten at the Red Sea, and ten things were created on the eve of the Sabbath in the twilight. And now it shall be added, ten good deeds the poor man affords the rich man. Proceed, Yankala. First comes my allowance from the synagogue, eight pounds. Once a week I call and receive half a crown. Is that all? Our synagogue allows three and six. Ah, sighed the Pole wistfully. Did I not say you be a superior race? But that makes only six pounds ten. I know the other thirty shillings I allow for Passover cakes and groceries. Then for synagogue knocking I get ten guineas. "'Stop! stop!' cried Manasseh, with a sudden scruple. "'Ought I to listen to financial details on the Sabbath?' "'Certainly, when they be connected with my marriage. "'Which is a commandment, it is the law we really discuss.' "'You are right. Go on, then. "'But remember, even if you can prove you can schnorr enough to keep a wife, "'I do not bind myself to consent.' "'You be already a father to me.' Why will you not be my father-in-law? Anyhow, you will find me a father-in-law, he added hastily, seeing the blackness gathering again on de Costa's brow. Nay, nay, we must not talk of business on the Sabbath, said Manasseh evasively. Proceed with your statement of income. Ten guineas for synagogue knocking. I have twenty clients who— Stop a moment. I cannot pass that item. Why not? It's true. Maybe, but synagogue knocking is distinctly work. Work? Well, if going round early in the morning to knock at the doors of twenty pious persons and rouse them for morning service isn't work, then the Christian bell-ringer is a beggar. No, no. Profits from this source I cannot regard as legitimate. But most schnorrers be synagogue knockers. "'Most schnorrers are congregation men or psalms men,' retorted the Spaniard witheringly. "'But I call it debasing. "'What? "'To assist at the services for a fee? "'To worship one's maker for hire? "'Under such conditions to pray is to work?' "'His breast swelled with majesty and scorn. "'I cannot call it work.' protested the schnorrer. Why, at that rate you would make out that the minister works, or the preacher. Why, I reckon fourteen pounds a year to my services as congregation man. Fourteen pounds, as much as that? Yes, you see, there's my private customers as well as the synagogue. When there is a morning in the house, they cannot always get together ten friends for the services, so I make one. 
How can you call that work? It is friendship. And the more they pay me, the more friendship I feel, asserted Yankele with a twinkle. Then the synagogue allows me a little extra for announcing the dead. In those primitive times when a Jewish newspaper was undreamt of, the day's obituary was published by a peripathetic schnorrer who went about the ghetto rattling a pix, a copper money-box with a handle and a lid closed by a padlock. On hearing this death-rattle, anyone who felt curious would ask the schnorrer, "'Who's dead today?' "'So-and-so, Ben, so-and-so. Funeral on such a day, morning service at such an hour.' the snorer would reply, and the inquirer would piously put something in the bix, as it was called. The collection was handed over to the Hevrekadisha, in other words, the burial society. "'Perhaps you call that verk,' concluded Yankele in a timid challenge. "'Of course I do. What do you call it?' "'Walking exercise. It keeps me healthy.' Vance, friend of my customers, from whom I snored half a crown a week, said he was tired of my coming and getting it every Friday. He wanted to compound me meat for six pounds a year, but I wouldn't. But that was a very fair offer. He only deducted ten shillings for the interest on his money. That I didn't mind, but I wanted a pound more for his depriving me of my walking exercise, and that he wouldn't pay, so he goes on giving me half a crown a week. Some of these charitable persons are terribly mean, but what I want to say is that I carry the bicks mostly in the street where my customers lay. It gives me more standing as a schnorrer. No, no, that is a delusion. What? Are you weak-minded enough to believe that? All the philanthropists say so, of course, but surely you know that schnorring and work should never be mixed. A man cannot do two things properly. He must choose his profession and stick to it. A friend of mine once succumbed to the advice of the philanthropists instead of asking mine. He had one of the best provincial rounds in the kingdom, but in every town he weakly listened to the lectures of the president of the congregation inculcating work, and at last he actually invested the savings of years in jewellery and went around trying to peddle it. The presidents all bought something to encourage him, though they beat down the price so that there was no profit in it, and they all expressed their pleasure at his working for his living and showing a manly independence. "'But I schnor also,' he reminded them, holding out his hand when they had finished. It was in vain. No one gave him a farthing. He had blundered beyond redemption. At one blow he had destroyed one of the most profitable connections a schnorrer ever had, and without even getting anything for the goodwill. So, if you will be guided by me, Yankala, you will do nothing to assist the philanthropists to keep you. It destroys their satisfaction. A schnorrer cannot be too careful. And once you begin to work, where are you to draw the line? "'But you be a marriage-broker yourself,' said Yankele impudently. "'That!' thundered Manasseh angrily. "'That is not work. 
That is pleasure. Vy look, there is Henry Simmons, cried Yankele, hoping to divert his attention. But he only made matters worse. Henry Simmons was a character variously known as the Tumbling Jew, Harry the Dancer, and the Juggling Jew. He was afterwards to become famous as the hero of a slander case which deluged England with pamphlets for and against, but for the present he had merely outraged the feelings of his fellow schnorrers by budding out in a direction so rare as to suggest preliminary baptism. He stood now playing antic and sleight-of-hand tricks, surrounded by a crowd, a curious figure crowned by a velvet skull-cap from which wisps of hair protruded, with a scarlet handkerchief thrust through his girdle. His face was an olive oval, bordered by ragged tufts of beard and stamped with melancholy. "'You see the results of working?' cried Manasseh. "'It brings temptation to work on Sabbath. That Epicurean there is profaning the holy day. Come away! A Schnorrer is far more certain of the world to come. No, decidedly, I will not give my daughter to a worker, or to a Schnorrer who makes illegitimate profits. But I make the profits all the same, persisted Yankele. You make them to-day, but to-morrow? There is no certainty about them. Work of whatever kind is, by its very nature, unreliable. At any moment trade may be slack. People may become less pious, and you lose your synagogue-knocking. Or more pious, and they won't want congregation men. But new synagogues spring up, urged Yankele. New synagogues are full of enthusiasm, retorted Manasseh. The members are their own congregation men. Yankele had his roguish twinkle. At first, he admitted, but the Schnorrer waits his time. Manasseh shook his head. Schnorring is the only occupation that is regular all the year round, he said. Everything else may fail. The greatest commercial houses may totter to the ground. As it is written, he humbleth the proud. But the Schnorrer is always secure. Whoever fails, there are always enough left to look after him. If you were a father, Yankele, you would understand my feelings. How can a man allow his daughter's future happiness to repose on a basis so uncertain as work? No, no. What do you make by your district visiting? Everything turns on that. Twenty-five shillings a week. Really? Law of Moses. In sixpences, shillings, and half-crowns. Why, in Houndsditch alone I have two streets, all except for a few houses. But are they safe? Population shifts. Good streets go down. That twenty-five shillings is as safe as Mukata's business. I have it all written down at home. You can inspect the books if you choose. No, no, said Manasseh, with a grand wave of his stick. If I did not believe you, I should certainly not entertain your proposal for a moment. 
It rejoices me exceedingly to find you have devoted so much attention to this branch. I have always held strongly that the rich should be visited in their own homes, and I grieve to see this personal touch, this contact with the very people to whom you give the good deeds, being replaced by lifeless circulars. One owes it to one's position in life to afford the wealthy classes the opportunity of charity, warm from the heart. They should not be neglected and driven in their turn to write checks in cold blood, losing all that human sympathy which comes from personal intercourse. As it is written, charity delivers from death. But do you think charity that is given publicly through a secretary and advertised in annual reports has so great a redeeming power as that slipped privately into the hands of the poor man, who makes a point of keeping secret from every donor what he has received from the others? "'I'm glad you don't call collecting the money work,' said Yankele, with a touch of sarcasm which was lost on da Costa. No, so long as the donor can't show any value received in return, and there's more friendship in such a call, Yankele, than in going to a house of mourning to pray for a fee. Oh, said Yankele, wincing, then perhaps you strike out all my year-time item. Year-time? What's that? Don't you know? said the Pole, astonished. "'When a man has year-time, he feels charitable for the day.' "'You mean when he commemorates the anniversary of the death of one of his family? We Sephardim call that making years. But are there enough year-times, as you call them, in your synagogue?' "'There might be more. I only make about fifteen pounds. Our colony is, as you say, new to us. The Globe Road Cemetery is as empty as a synagogue on weekdays. The fathers have left their fathers on the continent, and kept many year-times out of the country. But in a few years many fathers and mothers must die off here, and every parent leaves two or three sons to have year-times, and every child two or three brothers and a father. Then every day more German Jews come here, which means more and more to die. I think indeed it would be fair to double this item. No, no, stick to facts. It is an iniquity to speculate in the misfortunes of our fellow creatures. Somebody must die that I may live, retorted Yankele roguishly. The world is so created. Did you not quote, charity delivers from death? If people lived forever, snorers could not live at all. Hush! The world could not exist without snorers. As it is written, and repentance and prayer and charity avert the evil decree. Charity is put last, it is the climax, the greatest thing on earth, and the Schnorrer is the greatest man on earth, for it stands in the Talmud. He who causes is greater than he who does. Therefore the Schnorrer who causes charity is even greater than he who gives it. Talk of the devil! said Yankele, who had much difficulty in keeping his countenance when Manasseh became magnificent and diathrambic. "'Why, there's Greenbaum, whose father was buried yesterday. Let us cross over by accident and wish him long life.' "'Greenbaum dead? 
Was that the green balm on change who was such a rascal with the wenches? The same, said Yankele. Then approaching the sun, he cried, Good Sabbath, Mr. Greenbaum. I wish you a long life. What a blow for the community. It comforts me to hear you say so, said the son with a sob in his voice. Oh, yes, said Yankele chokingly. Your father was a great and good man, just my size. I've already given them away to Baruch the glazier, replied the mourner. Ah, but he has his glazing remonstrated Yankele. I have nothing but the clothes I stand in, and they don't fit me half so well as your father's would have done. Baruch has been very unfortunate, replied Greenbaum defensively. He had a misfortune in the winter, and he was never got straight yet. A child of his died, and unhappily, just when the snowballing was at its height, so that he lost seven days by the morning. And he moved away. "'Did I not say work was uncertain?' cried Manasseh. "'Not at all,' maintained the Schnorrer. "'What of the six guineas I made by carrying round the palm branch on tabernacles to be shaken by the womans who cannot ascend synagogue, and by blowing the trumpet for the same womans on New Year's so that they may bake their fasts?' "'The amount is too small to deserve discussion. Pass on.' "'There's a smaller amount.' Just half of that I get from the presents to the poor at the Feast of Lots, and from the bridegrooms for the beginning, and the bridegrooms of the law at the rejoicing of the law, and there's about four pounds ten a year from the sale of the clothes given to me. Then I have a lot of meals given me. This I have reckoned is as good as seven pounds. And lastly, I cannot count the odds and ends under ten guineas. You know there is always legacies and gifts and distributions, all unexpected. You never know who'll break out next. Yes, I think it's not too high a percentage of your income to expect from unexpected sources, admitted Manasseh. I have myself lingered about Change Alley or Sampson's Coffee House, just when the jobbers have pulled off a special coup, and they have paid me quite a high percentage on their profits. "'And I,' boasted Yankele, stung to noble emulation, "'have made two sovereigns in one minute out of Gideon the bullion-broker. He likes to give the Schnorrers sovereigns, as if in mistake for shillings, to see what they'll do. The fools hurry off or move slowly away, as if not noticing or put it quickly in the pocket. But those who have the wisdom to tell him he has made a mistake—' and he gives them another sovereign. Honesty is the best policy with Gideon. Then there is the Rabbi de Fogg, de Balshem, the great Kabbalist. Then—' "'But,' interrupted Manasseh impatiently, "'you haven't made out your hundred and fifty a year.' Yankele's face fell. "'Not if you cut out so many items.' "'No, but even all-inclusive it only comes to a hundred and forty-three pounds nineteen shillings.' "'Nonsense!' said Yankele, staggered. "'How can you know so exact?' "'Do you think I cannot do simple addition?' responded Manasseh sternly. "'Are not those your ten items?' "'One. Synagogue pension with Passover extras, eight pounds. Two. Synagogue knocking, ten pounds, ten shillings. Three. District visiting, sixty-five pounds. Four. As congregation man and pix-bearer, fourteen pounds. Five, year times, fifteen pounds. 
Six, palm branch and trumpet fees, six pounds six shillings. Seven, Purim feasts and so on, three pounds three shillings. Eight, sale of clothes, four pounds ten shillings. Nine, equivalent of free meals, seven pounds. Ten, miscellanea, the unexpected, ten pounds ten shillings. Total, one hundred and forty-three pounds nineteen shillings. A child could sum it up, concluded Manasseh severely. Yankele was subdued to genuine respect and consternation by da Costa's marvellous memory and arithmetical genius, but he rallied immediately. "'Of course I also reckoned on a dowry mid my bride, if only a hundred pounds.' "'Well, invested in consuls, that would not bring you four pounds more,' replied Manasseh instantly. "'The rest will be made up in extra free meals.' Yankala answered no less quickly, "'For when I take your daughter off your hands, you will be able to afford to invite me more often to your table than you do now.' "'Not at all,' retorted Manasseh. "'For now that I know how well off you are, I shall no longer feel I am doing a charity.' "'Oh, yes, you will.' said Yankele insinuatingly. "'You are too much a man of honour to know as a private philanthropist what I have told the marriage-broker, the father-in-law, and the fellow-schnorrer. Besides, I would have the free meals from you as the son-in-law, not the schnorrer.' "'In that relation I should also have free meals from you,' rejoined Manasseh. "'I never dared to think you would do me the honour. But even so, I can never give you such good meals as you gave me, so there is a balance in my favour. Mm, that is true, said de Costa thoughtfully, but you have still about a guinea to make up. Yankele was driven into a corner at last. He flashed back without perceptible pause. You do not allow for what I save by my piety. I fast twenty times a year, and surely that is at least another guinea per annum. But you will have children, reported de Costa. Yankele shrugged his shoulders. That is the affair of the Holy One, blessed be here. When he sends them, he will provide for them. You must not forget, too, that mid your daughter the dowry would be nothing so small as a hundred pounds. "'My daughter will have a dowry befitting her station, certainly,' said Manasseh, in his grandest manner. "'But then I had looked forward to her marrying a king of Schnorrers.' "'Well, but when I marry her, I shall be.' "'How so?' "'I shall have schnorred your daughter, the most precious thing in the world, and schnorred her former king of Schnorrers, too.' and i shall have schnorred your services as marriage broker into the bargain End of chapter three